Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. The story of popular entertainment in American immigrant communities is only just beginning to be told. Chinatown Opera Theater in North America by Nancy Rao from University of Illinois Press addresses the history of Cantonese opera performed in Chinatowns and cities across North America, with a primary focus on San Francisco, New York City, and Vancouver during the 1920s. Using a wealth of archival material, including playbills, reviews, theatrical records, and perhaps most surprisingly, reports from the U.S. Immigration Service, Rao provides an enormous amount of information about the theaters, companies, performers, and repertoire of this operatic genre. She does much more than simply provide a chronicle, however. She contextualizes the performance of Cantonese opera within the cultural life of Chinese communities, explains the print materials and recordings that circulated the music, and details the significant impact that exclusionary governmental immigration policies had on this theatrical tradition and Chinese immigrants in Canada and the United States. Hello, Dr. Rao. I'm so happy to welcome you to the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Um, This is just a fascinating topic and one that I think has not been investigated very much by musicologists. Can you talk to me a little bit about why you chose this particular topic for your for this monograph? Yes, it's a, it's a really long story. Um, I, as you probably know, that I was trained as a music theorist. So um, my study was mostly on the analysis, close analysis of music structure and its meaning and such. One area that I studied was a, um, uh, ultra-modern music of the 1930s. And when I was doing studies of that period, um, working on composers such as Henry Cow, Ruth Crawford, I noticed that there is this um, reference to Chinese opera in their writing and how much they're influenced by particular performances. So I look into it because um, um, as, as a Chinese, I know something about Chinese opera. And once I started looking into it, I uh, realized there's a host of um, information out there that no one has touched. So um, I started to uh, dig deeper and then realized that there's a vibrant theater uh, in Chinatowns across America in 1920s. And these uh, were kept uh, mostly in the form of private um, collection or you know, uh, ethnic libraries. So musicians normally don't stumble onto them. So I realized that if I want to um, have people take this history seriously, then I need to um, help provide the documentary um, or make the documents available to people and make the sound um, somehow accessible to people. So that started um, this whole research uh, about 15 years ago, actually. So that's where it took me um, and to the final form of this book. Um, can you talk a little bit about the repertoire itself? Um, 
of Cantonese opera? Like what exactly were you investigating and, you know, what did it sound like and look like for our listeners who aren't familiar with the Cantonese repertoire? That is a really good question and a difficult one to answer. Um, in fact, the uh, visual aspect of it is much easier to get to. Um, only because we have the stage photos and we have the playbills, I explore something like a thousand playbills, which is very detailed and tell us a lot about the repertoire during that time. However, the sound is difficult because they, even though there's a historical recording for us to listen to, to understand the you know, aesthetics and the beauty of the voice during that time, Cantonese opera as a genre has changed a great deal. And today, um, they no longer perform a lot of repertoire that, you know, my singers were performing in 1920s. So um, aside from those historical uh, recordings, we really have little to go by. Um, So we'll have to somewhat reconstruct that historical sound as well through writing and in fact, my next project will be to create anthology of recordings um, from those historical recordings, which are typically the 78 you know, records um, scattered in the different sound archive all over the country. And I'm hoping that that anthology will be able to um, serve as a companion to my book to help people acquire both the historical context um, the repertoire and the sound of that period. Um, one of the things that uh, I wondered about as reading it was you said that there were sort of two golden ages of Cantonese opera in, um, I would say, North America, since you also uh, talk about Canada quite a bit. Um, one was in the 1870s and the other in the 1920s. And I wondered why you decided to focus primarily on the 1920s. And you do talk a little bit about the earlier period as a sort of background to the 20s, but you don't really get into it much. And, and I wondered why that was. Right. It is uh, just due to the sheer uh, lack of uh, historical document. The reason that I was able to talk about the 1920s at all um, was due to the fact that there's several Chinese newspapers published in San Francisco and uh, Vancouver or, in, or even New York. And their uh, publication started around the turn of the century. And so these newspapers provide a lot of information. Uh, aside from that, there's also playbills. You know, um, imagine the cities um, that have actually facility to print Chinese newspaper, right? So they also have the same capability to print playbill um, uh, on a daily basis. In fact, they print something like a thousand or so uh, playbills uh, to distribute all over the place. So given that kind of you know um, historical document, and plus the sound archive um, that has the historical recording, uh, it's possible to talk about the um, 1920s, and it's precisely that that um, those information that provide us the uh, rich details of this period. And the other golden period, which is the first one, was in the 1870s. And the 1870s obviously leave us with no sound recording, uh, but also there was uh, very little uh, that's 
um, textual um, evidence that we can get from the Chinese side. So we know about that golden period mainly from English newspaper. Uh, that is the newspapers that just talk about how um, how uh, uh, the events in there, the news about them, or sometimes even advertise of them in you know newspapers in San Francisco or Vancouver. And um, these newspapers would um, be written, as you can imagine, by uh, reporters who have very little knowledge about Chinese opera. So they are very um, one-sided and stereotype uh, kind of description about Chinese opera. So aside from um, noting the existence of and the vibrancy of these uh, theaters, because at one point there were like four theaters in San Francisco and also four theaters running at the same time in uh, Victoria, uh, British Columbia. So we know their existence, but we don't know what, you know, what's going on in those theaters. So it's nearly impossible. Uh, and I remember vividly when I first started um, this project, uh, uh, a colleague of mine told me that, oh, Nancy, you've got to write about 19th century. You've got to write the whole history. And I said, I can't because I don't have document. I know they were, you know, vibrant, but I have nothing that I can go by. So I think the important thing about the 1920s is that we have documents from Chinese community. So we can write and learn about their theaters through their own voice. And that, to me, is the most important thing that um, I want to convey with this book. You know, I think your point about there not being enough documentation for the 19th century is really interesting because so often we think of, well, you know, there's such a vibrant print culture by the 19th century. There's so many documents. But, you know, as you say, there's there's a lot of uh, documentation missing or never created, even in a period of high literacy with a lot of, uh, you know, access to print technology. Exactly. Even still, it's you can have just as little as is left from the medieval period sometimes. <laughs> yes. So. yes, absolutely. Uh, even relatively recently. So yeah. um, that certainly makes sense to me. Um, and actually, you talked a little bit about how the even uh, those what is left in the 1870s is um, because it's from the English language press, it really reflects the racism of the time. And that is one of the um, threads that I found so fascinating that runs through the book, which is the really fundamental influence of the immigration laws, um, both in the United States and in Canada on um, the building of theaters, the ability of um, performers to get into the states and all of that. Can you talk a little bit about you know, how the various changes in immigration law and the enforcement of those laws were so important to the development and the sort of maintenance of this, this type of theater at all? Yes, yes. It's a, a very intertwined history. I would say uh, Chinese opera theater uh, in the United States could be used as a you know, case study for the immigration, theater, uh, immigration history, actually. Um, so in the, 18, uh, in the 1870s, um, uh, the first golden period of uh, uh, Chinese theaters in America, there was no, there was no hindrance on, on Chinese actors for entering the United States. So they were able to um, es- establish theaters with no problem whatsoever. There's anti-Chinese sentiment 
But because of the uh, treaty between the United States and China at that time, um, the people uh, were allowed to uh, travel free to each other's country and conduct business. So that was the case until 1882 when the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed at Congress. And that, that exclusion law um, uh, per, prohibited the uh, Chinese laborer to enter the United States. And because it was focused on Chinese laborer, um, so Chinese actors were not as affected um, as long as they, they can prove that they don't perform and they have no um, you know, intention to compete with other laborers in the United States. Uh, these Chinese actors were able to enter the United States and perform the theater. And, um, but later, that uh, Chinese Exclusion Act was um, uh, extended and then changed in nature until it becomes that there's only five class of um, Chinese who can enter the United States. And those five class of Chinese doesn't include Chinese actor, just as it did not include preacher, accountant, doctor, or anything like that. And because that happened, so Chinese actor started to have a hard time coming to the United States, and the theaters then start to dwindle. And when there's no more um, Chinese actor to arrive to perform, the theaters cannot sustain themselves. And the last draw was the um, fire in 1906 in San Francisco, where it burned down the whole Chinatown, and together with it, the the last Chinese theaters. So after that, for 12 years, there's no theaters at all in the United States for uh, the Chinese community. And and so it's not until um, the early 1920s that through the intervention of um, other business people, uh, entrepreneur for their own, you know, um, uh, business reason that again Chinese actors uh, started to be able to uh, have access uh, to come into the United States, and that gave rise to the boom of uh, Chinese theaters in the 1920s. So, who I know all these theaters were in. At least I think most of them were in Chinatowns, but um, who? actually was attending these um, performances? Um, so it was actually mostly uh, Chinese um, um, uh, Chinese uh, immigrant. Uh, but, but there's something really interesting about what they had intended. So the first troop came back to the United States in 1922. And that was at a time, as you can imagine, the Roaring Twenties. And there's a lot of, you know, theatrical performances, you know, musicals that was on the rise and the circuses had a Chinese act as, as a norm. So um, there was a, a play called The Yellow Jacket that became really popular and that basically emulate the Chinese, you know, theater, um, including the, uh, the costume and so on and so forth. And so when Chinese theater... Um, as I wrote in the book, uh, was very lively in Vancouver, and they found a way 
to bypass the Chinese exclusion to end and, and uh, were able to enter the United States again. They were very ambitious. They wanted to build really good theater. They wanted to compete um, with this kind of pseudo Chinese theater. They they figure if they if you know Chinese American public like pseudo Chinese theater, they may like the real Chinese theaters. So when they first returned to United States in 1920s, they printed playbills that has both Chinese and English on it. And um, and then when they went to um, Seattle and San Francisco, they first rented um, theaters not inside of Chinatown, but outside in the typical vaudeville, you know, performance venues. They were thinking that they were able to attract both. But at the end, it proved that there, uh, there are no competition to those pseudo-Chinese um, acts. And for the most part, they realized the, uh, the Chinese community is really raved and just embraced them. So they start to build theaters in Chinatown, and then the uh, audience, you know, become primarily Chinese. But at the same time, they were also the top destination of the tourists uh, when they visit San Francisco. So we see a lot of reports about that. And therefore, there will be Chinese, uh, primarily Chinese audiences with some um, non-Chinese audiences in there as well. And as we have learned from biographical account, autobiographical account, uh, composers such as um, Henry Cow, John Cage, Lou Harrison were all uh, among the audience in the San Francisco's theaters. And we're, you know, looking at this very much from the music side, um, but at the same time on the uh, um, side of modern dance, modern theaters. There are also um, many evidences of influence that they receive from the uh, Chinese theaters in North America. So it's, I would say it's it's kind of mixed, but with uh, majority Chinese uh, audiences. And were the Chinese audiences of all socioeconomic levels? I'm just wondering, you know, about the price of the ticket. Could, uh, you know, a, a working class Chinese laborer, for instance, still afford to go? Or was this something that was really pitched more towards middle and upper class Chinese, um, uh, Chinese Americans? That's a, a fabulous question. And I w- wouldn't have been able to answer that question uh, and I had not run into some business paper. So after I written that book, I run into this business paper of a Vancouver theaters in 1918. And that included uh, daily receipts of the box office. And that taught me a lot. Uh, so what happened is this. There's um, each of these theaters by the 1920s anywhere between 700 people to 900 people. And at the top, they have this you know, expensive ticket for something like about 150 seats. And the rest are the cheaper tickets. And after 9 o'clock, the ticket gets even cheaper. So uh, I just recently wrote an article um, focusing on those uh, business receipts 
which reveal that uh, on single night, a theater can have um, uh, income of $500 or $150. Depends on how large the uh, lower price ticket got sold. In other words, there's a fixed number of higher price tickets and uh, the, the, there's not much of variation in terms of you know the number of tickets sold in that small rank. But the larger, cheaper tickets can really fluctuate. It can be you know, five times more one evening and five times less the next evening. So the maintenance or this, how um, Chinese theaters can earn enough money and enough audience support to sustain daily performances really rely on the larger public. And they make it easy by reducing the price to a later part of the evening. And when I was doing the interview um, in San Francisco communities, uh, I've talked to people who attended the theaters in the a bit later, like late 1930s. They told me that they typically would go after 9 o'clock because tickets are much cheaper by that time. And um, they would go uh, uh, sometimes with... With 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 adult, and um, in fact, if if they can hang on to adult, their entry will be free. Uh, so, for these theaters to maintain um, the kind of um, profits they have and to sustain the everyday performances, it has to be the large community. And uh, I hope my future um, uh, research and uh, um, writing will reflect this more clearly, which was really not talked about in, in my book. Well, I have to say, I agree with you about business records from theaters. I've used that in my own research, and they're oh, wow. a, an absolute goldmine of information that you can't find anywhere else. It's just fascinating. So right. I'm, And it's hard to find. Like, right. They're not easy to... to uh, <laughs> to find find those kinds of records so it's exciting that you found something like that because that it, you do get information there that you you just can't access any other way that's really really cool right right uh, i i love archives <laughs> <laughs> that was very interesting also a very good learning lesson because i think other people have studied our archive but because they're looking for different things um the kind of daily you know ticket sale was not on their radar so uh, I didn't go into that archive expecting to find those information, thinking that this has been combed through by others, you know. But, of course, everyone brings different questions to archives. So that's a very important lesson for me to have, have learned. Um, yes, I agree with that. I, I have uh, I've found the same thing to be true as well. Um, I'm wondering if... Um, I was wondering about the sort of transnational aspect of this between um, the United States, Canada, and um, uh, the Cantonese opera theaters um, and industry in China itself. Was there a big difference between what one could find and hear in North America and China, or were they? Was that 
the same repertoire? I, I, you know what I'm asking? I'm, I'm just wondering if there were ways in which the repertoire gets changed in North, North America, or are we just seeing exactly the same um, right. um, productions? I, I, I think it's actually both. Um, in terms of uh, the popular title, they're all the same. Uh, it's just like, you know, if if these are the twenty uh, repertoire everyone likes to listen uh, in the nineteen twenties, you can find them both. Uh, you know, in the in advertisement of South South China during that time, as well as you can find it in North America. However, it's very different because um, there are many things that contribute to um, the unique situation in the United States. One of the most important things is that um, in China, it was still banned for women and men to perform on stage together. It was considered immoral. So they, even though there were um, all-male troupe and an all-female troupe, they performed separately. And so even though they performed even the same repertoire, on sometimes even emulating each other's performance style, they cannot perform together. And that ban was not lifted until the 1930s. Um, in the United States, however, there were no such um, there were no such kind of you know uh, gender um, constraint. So they perform on stage from day one in 1920s. Oh, I must say. Women were not allowed on China stage in the 19th century. So in the 19th century, when those troops came to the United States, they're all all-male troops. Okay. So 1920, around 1910 is was when the Chinese um, uh, ban about women on stage was lifted. So there were actresses who were trained to be opera performer, and they were allowed on stage in this all-female troupe. So when they came to the United States, um, I think very much influenced by the ways in which, you know, this society uh, are, is accustomed to seeing men and women performing on stage together. So not only that, there is no prohibition for them to perform together, and that's not a scandal at all, but also that it's almost preferred. In fact, there is one application of... Um, uh, theater, uh, so the Mandarin theater had to apply um, to the uh, Department of Labor to establish a theater. In its application, it actually make it clear that uh, it will feature performance with men playing men and women playing women. It um, advocates that is the good moral way of doing things rather than the impersonation. Uh, so because of all this um, uh, historical context in the social situation in the United States, um, the performances that you would see at the Chinese opera stage during that time in San Francisco or Vancouver were all mixed um, um, troupe. And that provided a lot of interesting things, as you can imagine, because uh, not only you have um, women playing female role and men playing male roles. But you also have sometimes the arrival of um, actor who specialize and excel and actually, in fact, famous for 
playing female roles. So when they come here, they would continue to play what they are very good at, which is uh, the female roles. And so you have a really um, fluid, gender fluid situation on stage. The audience can go in the theater and can expect just about any kind of combination. Um, but because the role types um, can be played by both gender, so anyone, um, if you're trained for this particular role type, you can go out and perform it. So the most bizarre situation would be a man playing a female role against um, a woman playing a male role. <laughs> and, and that does happen. I've, uh, I've seen that in some playbill. Um, so I think it's really fascinating to think about the different uh, flexibility the audience allowed for the kind of gender bending on stage. And, and, and I think I have no way of knowing whether they, um, they gain any kind of uh, you know, pleasure out of seeing the gender bending or not, or they just take it as a norm. Uh, it's hard to tell. Uh, that is one of the hard things about that sort of research, where if it's just taken for granted, they don't talk about it, and then you you can't talk about it either <laughs> because they didn't say anything. <laughs> uh, so the qual- so the um, you've explained how the genders of the performers and whether or not they're impersonating another gender is one big difference that happened between North American um, opera and and uh, or Cantonese opera and in other places, but. Do they also have particular pieces that are different as well that maybe incorporate the immigrant experience or, you know, where the audience might see themselves a bit in the work? Or is it all the same repertoire? A lot of times they make effort to reflect a contemporary event. But I would say the majority of the um, repertoire are still the same. They're still the same kind of um, repertoire that you would see in uh, Shanghai or um, or uh, Hong Kong. Uh, I think the um, the entertainment value of the theater is the primary concern uh, for these theaters and to compete. So, for example, in San Francisco, there are two theaters. So, to compete with each other, they they really put out things that are. Um, top-notch performance and a very enticing uh, plot line. Um, so they, they really um, were very similar to the best plays uh, that you see in uh, south, southern um, China. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, were there other types of um, Chinese language entertainment going on in those theaters at the same time? Or I, I mean, I know there's a lot of Chinese languages, but yeah. Mandarin or Cantonese or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, or were these theaters, or, or maybe I could ask in a slightly different way, 
um, were people who lived in these Chinatowns, was that their main form of entertainment or did they have access to other types of ethnically Chinese um, uh, entertainment? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, there's many dialects in Chinese and also many different types of people who came to the United States during that time. So uh, the Cantonese opera um, really were um, the key entertainment for the majority of immigrants who migrate from uh, Pearl uh, Delta uh, River area, and they're all Cantonese, and, and they spoke um, you know, one or the other version of the dialogue around that time. And it's very important to know that even though they might speak slightly different type of dialect that was used in um, the Canton area, um, they can still appreciate the Cantonese that's used on stage in the theater because um, the arias themselves are sung by a kind of more ancient that, um, form of uh, Mandarin Chinese. So that's kind of understood by everyone because that's like not a uh, daily use kind of dialect, but only used in opera. So uh, they can use that. Uh, so Cantonese opera has this huge hold on the uh, majority of uh, Chinese immigrants. And at the same time, however, there is also Peking opera or other form of um, opera genre that were um, sung and performed in the small elite group. These are people from northern part of China who came to the United States um, as a student or as diplomat. So they gather more in um, New York City or Washington, D.C. So they form small clubs. So in newspapers, I would read, for example, that in uh, Columbia University, you would have students who gather together to perform Peking opera. And those are very, you know, amateur type, extracurricular type of things. Um, So they're not, you know, uh, for theater of 700 people because it's, it's just not how they worked. But another part of the uh, issue about entertainment is actually a very important one, which is the Chinese immigrants were at the same time um, fascinated by the American um, entertainment. So they were, you know, interested in trying out vaudeville they were interested in trying out the various different ways of, you know, doing shows uh, on stage. So then there's this kind of beginning portion in 1930s of the um, nightclub. And they start to perform what they consider uh, to be, um, you know, the popular songs. So, for example, the Timpan Alley songs, that kind of stuff. So there's a small portion of Chinese um, second generation that um, uh, Chinese American second generation that started to perform that way. And um, they not only perform in one place, but also travel to on the circuit for, uh, for performers and that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, that was also available um, as entertainment. But still, the majority, I would say, the... Um, um, collective memory in terms of the music space, I think would still be the Chinese theaters. 
so were the um, audiences, do you think, mostly born outside of the United States or Canada or um, because of the Chinese Exclusion Act? Are you seeing even in the 20s, primarily second generation, that is the children of immigrants who are going to this, um, these theaters? Um, I think this is another thing that really is hard to do research on, right? So again, I think the um, in my um, recent article, I start to talk about the change of uh, the Chinese uh, immig- uh, community in terms of the number of second generation. Um, in the 1920s, also the time when the uh, Chinatown in San Francisco started to have a lot of infrastructure to support the second generation. And so they have... Uh, for the first time, a playground. They also had uh, built a, uh, a swimming pool in YMCA. They have all sorts of things like Chinese schools and so on and so forth. So these are um, indication of the growing uh, population of a second-generation Chinese American. And um, in my study, um, which I gathered from the um, U.S. Census, um, I can I can say for sure that the number of American-born uh, women and American men, American-born men really doubled within, um, within that time. The percentage really doubled during that time uh, in, from 1920 to 1930s. And I think it's very important also to know that the Chinese exclusion was such that um, it was difficult for uh, Chinese um, living in even cities like San Francisco to venture outside of the Chinatown area. So we think the blocks of Chinatown was where they had their life. They, you know, have to find entertainment. They have to be good at um, things that, you know, this community uh, really treasure. So, uh, one of the things that the community treasure was things related to, to Chinese uh, in terms of the writing, in terms of, um, you know, performance. So one of the things that um, I was able to uncover was that many, many Chinese school uh, during that time, which is the Chinese school that, the, um, you know, the youngsters go to in after their regular English school every day. So a lot of these Chinese schools would have um, their student perform Cantonese opera at the school function, at fundraising event, and so on and so forth. So they really are, um, Chinese theater was really the primary entertainment, and it's also where they learned about uh, the Chinese uh, legends, uh, history, historical um, stories, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's really an education, uh, a school, a, a space of education, as well as a space of entertainment. And so I think it's also because the parent really wanted their children to, you know, um, learn things that um, are connected to the culture that they're very proud of. So Cantonese opera become one of the things that they they feel their children can um, benefit from in a variety of ways. I remember when I was interviewing people doing the, my field work in San Francisco, one of the most touching stories was that 
um, there's this little um, um, there's this woman who said that she was a little girl when she was at the theaters and watching you know opera uh, a lot, and she said one day she was so touched by the um, singing of the the main female figure, she was crying because it's a sad story, and she was just so moved, and she was you know just right next to the stage, and then the actress finished her singing and came down and saw her full of tears. And the actress said to her, silly girl, it's just a story. <laughs> so that really tells me um, how important this is before, you know, movie became a, or a TV became the primary entertainment. This is what people gain their, you know, um, uh, entertainment in, in a serious um, uh, kind of a, in a serious way. So you have people uh, who also have what they call the uh, scrapbook, right? They cut out all these pictures and put them in the um, scrapbook and even write out what opera they have seen and they have pages after page of this type of things. So I do think that at a time when there's little that they are they were able to um, have access to, and there's a strong will to connect to this um, cultural heritage. Chinese opera played an important role in the community for the youngsters. So they're not just for the immigrant; uh, they're for the youngster as well. So I had not realized from the book how much um, field work you actually did. Is that how you had access to so many private collections? I was looking at your bibliography and noticed how often you talked about, you know, you have quite a few private collections in your um, bibliography list. And I, I think that's a little bit unusual for this type of book. Is that is that how you got <laughs> access to all of that? Yeah, yeah. I was actually, uh, I was very... Um, I was really not sure that I could have um, any access to people who were still uh, able to talk, tell me anything about the 1920s, right? So if they were alive in the 1920s, they were very, very old by the time I started my research. So um, at first, I didn't think I could do any uh, field work. But then later, I realized um the theaters has its prime um, in the 1940s, but there are still people who went. And then so because I thought, okay, maybe I can talk to one or two people, then I started the uh, field work uh, process. But that was a very decisive uh, uh, step because once I started to reach out to the community to try to do field work, I realized actually there are a lot to, um, a lot to do. Because even if I cannot talk to people who were singing on stage or who were attending theaters in 1920s, per se, um, I could talk to the people who were their children or their grandchildren. So one of the people I talked to was a um, daughter of a ticket taker for one of the theaters. So she was able to tell me what her father was doing during that time. Uh, when he would go out to distribute the, um, you know, playbills over the town, uh, or I talked to people who 
um, were able to share with me. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> That's right. Sure. So one of the uh, uh, people I was able to interview was a, uh, a daughter of a ticket taker for Chinese theater. So he was able. Uh, so he, she was able to tell me uh, the ways in which the, um, her father uh, distribute um, the tick, uh, the playbills uh, all over Chinatown uh, around noon, and then uh, how the um, tickets was uh, starting this you know to be sold at three o'clock, and people sometimes going to put down their name to reserve the ticket, and so on and so forth. And also, there's another situation where I was able to talk to someone who was tutored by uh, one of the playwrights of the theater, and then talk about how the tutor become you know part of their family, and um, it was very uh, an idiosyncratic person. And then I was also uh, talking to someone who is a grandson of of a grand uh, of a patron. Um, who's a godmother to one of the actresses. And so actually there were a lot of people who have snippets of things um, or their own reflections of things that helped me really construct a a much more lively story. So I felt um, those interviews are so important just to get in touch with the people who um, are in that lineage and didn't have did not have first-hand experience, but have a lot to say about the period. And what's even more exciting is that after my book has been published, I have even more people coming um, out to me to say, oh, wait a second, I have this recollection, I have, you know, that much, um, these photos to show you. So um, it becomes a kind of ongoing um, collection of more material for the future project. But the community is just amazing. And I must confess that I wish I had more time to do more field work on this. Because uh, in, in some sense, I'm racing with time. A lot of people uh, are not going to be here forever. So I need to you know, really um, gather their recollection and then talk to them. So that's, that's, that's something that I um, keep in mind as well. Well, that, that's just amazing. And it's so exciting that you're finding more people you can talk to through the book. It shows that there must be people who are not part necessarily scholars who are finding your book. And that's wonderful. That's so rare, I think, for for a book coming out of a scholarly press that that there's interest in the community you're actually studying. That uh, I think that says you're doing something right. You know? <laughs> Right. Yeah, this is a huge history. And it's a, and I think they, they are happy to see this history, you know, see the light of the day. Um, well, I know we don't have too much time for too many more questions, but I just have to ask about one more thing that I, um, I was very astounded by, which was you often mentioned Cuba as a place where um, Cantonese performers were coming through or coming from, coming back and forth from the East Coast to Cuba. And I have to say, I would never have guessed there was Cantonese opera in Cuba. Can you tell me, who were these people? Was there a large Chinese community in Cuba? I had no idea. I was nothing. That really surprised me. 
Yeah, actually, Cuba is another thing that, you know, on my list of places that I wish that I could do more. Uh, yes, uh, there is a huge uh, Chinese immigration to Cuba all throughout the 19th century. And in fact, uh, Cuba presents a different case study for us. Because um, in Cuba, the there are a lot of interracial marriage. So... Uh, the the, um, uh, the Cuban Chinese um, were were much more integrated. Uh, I'll give you a little bit detour. Actually, recently there's a um, a, a documentary called the uh, Cuba uh, Cuban Diva. Uh, you can see trailer online. Um, it's about two women who uh, whose father was Chinese, whose mother was non Chinese. Uh, and they learn to sing um, Cantonese opera um, with their father, and they perform as amateur, and they perform a lot. In fact, they, I think they perform professionally, and and they they don't look Chinese at all because they are mixed, and um, and yet they sing this Cantonese opera fluently, beautifully, and they're they're you know. Just as we speak, they were just finishing their performance in in Hong Kong, um, and this was after some forty or fifty years of not performing at all because I guess the political situation or whatever um, stopped their performance, and they are now back, you know, to perform because people found this incredible. Um, but what going back to the nineteen twenties? It was actually a very important um, place, both in terms of the Chinese community and in terms of Chinese theaters. Um, So one of my biggest uh, finds was a playbill of uh, uh, Chinese theaters in in Havana. And this playbill was just every bit as professional as the ones that you find in North America, um, in Canada, in, in the United States. And so it became established after I look into more immigration file that Cuba was really, um, Havana in particular, was a very important destination for the performing network. Um, and the people typically, um, you know, would come um, across the time continent from San Francisco to New York, and then travel from New York to Havana, and then come back to Havana, uh, to New York, and then come, you know, perform more in North America. And the reason we know that Cuba has one of the best uh, chance theaters during that time in the Americas is because the top, the very top performers all went to Havana to perform. So we know that the theater there had money and also was considered important part of this performing circuit. So it is possible that um, that um, more things will be um, uncovered um, from the uh, Havana if you know there are people who go to the archive there and dig more. And uh, we just say the only one playbill, I have multiple playbills for all the other cities, 
but I have only one playbill for Havana. But that playbill was similarly published by or printed by the local Chinese newspaper in Havana. And it was, you know, beautiful. It's actually now collected in San Francisco. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the Stanford um, Special Collection. But only that, even if it's just one, it already goes to show how vibrant the theater uh, was uh, over there. So that's very exciting and it's for future scholars um, to explore further. Well, just in the context of this hour of conversation, you have talked about other projects you're working on and, you know, other leads that you might run down in the future. What exactly are you working right now on right now? Yeah, so uh, I have felt that this book was really about, um, you know, the larger um, performing network, but it's still focused more on San Francisco and New York. And I feel it's important to establish this part uh, as as the, doc- the doc- documents and chronicle the performance and style as much as I can. So I have two future projects. One is to um, situate the whole performing network more toward the Trans-Pacific kind of movement. And that would involve thinking about um, the performance uh, circulating among the cities of Shanghai, Hong Kong, and San Francisco. And that is really, I think, important also because I think to write it that way would make it more relevant to the whole transnational studies. Uh, a lot of the times, uh, people study transnational um, connection uh, mainly for you know the people, uh, the goods, uh, other type of production. But the cultural production is just as important. So I want to um, raise awareness uh, of that uh, for that reason. And another project is actually um, further down the line, uh, which is related to my last chapter. That is to say, um, to consider how Chinese American um, really have this different kind of historical uh, moment. And if we string them together, I mean, uh, let me put it differently, Chinese American music history um, have this different important moments. And how do we connect all these different moments in the history of Chinese American music to consider a history uh, as a whole and to see how some of these historical moments uh, are connected to one another um, and how does the past inform our present. So that's a, a larger project that would take into consideration the more recent um, performance of um, in compositions of Chinese American um, that uh, would include, um, you know, uh, commissioned by Metropolitan Opera uh, of Tandu and uh, on the opera called the uh, First Emperor, and it would include um, Red Chamber. Um, by Bryce Shen in San Francisco Opera, um, and so on and so forth. I think there's some important kind of large-scale work to 
be, you know, uh, contemplate and consider carefully. So that's uh, further down the line. Well, both those projects sound amazing and certainly much needed. Um, so I look forward to seeing those. Thank you so much for joining us, for joining me today. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity.